0: All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch.
1: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Happy New Year. It is 2018 and this is going to be your best year yet. I can feel it. I know it. And it's also the year that you're going to experience the most growth. That's why I'm so excited about today's episode. It's with David Baker, who wrote possibly my favorite book of the year in 2017. I read 57 books, and this was definitely one of my favorite books. The reason why I'm excited that this episode is coming out at the beginning of the year in 2018 is because it's going to show you Just what you need to work on in order to map out your thought leadership and also your expertise. So make sure you check it out. People have been asking me about Thought Leader Academy. Yes, that is still going on. It closes on the 14th of January. So if you still want to enroll, if you still want to be part of the program, the three-month coaching program that basically gives you a step-by-step approach on what you need to do in order to be a thought leader in your industry, what you need to do in order to be a speaker and what you need to do in order to attract the right press so that you can leverage that to build a movement. You can still enroll. I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. But without further ado, make sure you get David Baker's book, but also listen to the episode. One of the most fascinating individuals I've interviewed in the past three, four years I've been doing this. So check it out in a world where very few people embrace their global identity and seek to understand their neighbors cross-cultural expert tayo roxson is on a mission to bridge this divide each week he'll open your mind with insights from some of the global minds in the world get ready take some notes and learn How to be the best you that you can be. Welcome everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads. I am so excited to have today's guest on the show. I have been reading this book like a madman. I really, really love this book. It is something that I think everyone needs to read. It's called The Business of Expertise. And David grew up with a tribe of Mayan Indians in a remote village in the highlands of Guatemala. He's an author, speaker, advisor, and uh, he's someone that really helps entrepreneurial experts position themselves effectively. This is his fifth book. He's a helicopter and airline pilot, an avid photographer, and taught high-performance motorcycle riding. So there's definitely... Nothing that he doesn't uh, have a passion in, and he's based in Nashville. He's visited and worked all over the world, and today we're going to learn about his multicultural background, but also why he believes that experts and consultants today make a lot of mistakes in order, um, in order for them to be positioned as the best uh, entrepreneurs that they can be.
0: Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, uh, you know, I, I need to borrow some of your energy. I just feel. I feel like I'm drinking coffee just listening to you. It's just—it's <laughs> so funny. People say that to me all the time, but I, I don't drink coffee. Or, <laughs> oh, or can you imagine if you did? <laughs> the world would be in big trouble.
1: It's yeah. I, I don't drink coffee or drink alcohol, and people always tell me that because they're like. I don't know how you wake up with that energy. Why are you so loud? And
0: <laughs> and they're like,
1: how much How many how many cups of coffee do you drink? And I'm like, I didn't drink any coffee. And they're like,
0: <laughs> oh, that's great. Now I appreciate it. I appreciate the engagement, especially. And thank you for the kind introduction. I'll try to live up to it. Uh, well,
1: the, the funny thing is, you say you try to live up to it, but you've already lived up to it. You know, I mean, written this fifth book, and you did live in Guatemala, and now you are married. So uh, it's. Uh, <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, let's start with your background. Not everyone gets to grow up with a tribe of Mayan Indians, especially um, you wouldn't say a white American in you know in the highlands of Guatemala. So what took you there?
0: Yeah, no kidding. Uh, yeah, I, I am a white American, and I, I was the only there. I didn't have any friends who looked like me. But you know what? It didn't. It never. Struck me as odd. In fact, I never really made much in, of an issue of my background until I was maybe in my 30s, because it just seemed kind of normal to me. Mm. It did. It it. And I think that's the way a lot of people who live in varied cultures, remote cultures, feel. It's like this is the real world. It's you folks that are sort of strange. It's <laughs> and. <laughs> and, and and it was, it was very different. My, so when I was four or five, I, I can't remember what age we, we moved from the Detroit area. Down to Costa Rica, my parents needed to learn Spanish. That was the trade language, that not the language we spoke mostly, but the trade language. And so I was I was dropped into a Spanish kindergarten. I didn't know any Spanish, but it wasn't traumatic at all. I learned Spanish very quickly, as any young child does. We lived there for a year, and then we moved to Guatemala, where I lived for 13 years with uh, a tribe of Mayan Indians. As you said, it was very remote. There were no, you know, no no plumbing, no electricity. Uh, the roads were, you know, that's kind of generous to call them roads. It took six hours to go 60 miles on this path and very few stores. So that's just how we lived. You know, I I took correspondence courses. Uh, Mom didn't really teach me. It was more just self-paced. And I would get through them, get through a year's worth in about two or three months, which was great. And and then I would just explore the country. I, I rode a motorcycle, didn't have a driver's license. I, <laughs> I, I'm i thinking, I just remembered, I used a fishing license that was in English that I got one visit in the U.S., and they couldn't read it. So I'd show it to them, and they were like, well, it looks really official. It's got stamps on it. It must be a driver's license from another country. So that's how I kind of got around the country on a motorcycle. And my parents were, I don't know if they were crazy or if they just really believed in freedom, but they just let me wander. I didn't even have that much money. I'd just stop and and eat at people's homes or or stay with other people that I knew. And it was a great life. I, I it's, It almost seems otherworldly. I almost have to pinch myself because it seems like a life that would have happened three or four hundred years ago, not just 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, wow,
1: I, I hear you. I mean, it does sound like it. But I have two immediate questions then. What did yeah. your parents do that took you there, and what did you learn about yourself while growing up there?
0: Yeah, so my parents were were medical missionaries. So mm-hmm. dad did dental work, and mom did nursing work, and they also did literacy work. They were they were with a Protestant mission. Uh, I'm not too proud of some of the work that they did, like exporting. Uh, a white man's religion. Honestly, I, I feel quite uncomfortable with that part of it. But uh, the rest of what they were doing, I'm still really proud of. That so that answers that question. And in terms of what I learned about myself, wow, I it shaped my it shaped my personality. I'm a loner. I'm I'm not that fantastic with people. It comes it it's difficult for me. I have to work hard at it. I am very independent uh, and so those are strengths. Those are my strengths. They're also, this is, I wanted to ask you about this actually. Those are my strengths, but when they're overused, they are my biggest weaknesses as well. And it, it, it's something that I've been seeing in myself and other people as well that our biggest strengths when overused are also our biggest weaknesses. So like you, I've noticed that you sign, sign off podcasts about, how you can make a unique contribution to the world, and I so believe that, but it's it's also like if we make too unique of a contribution to to the world or if we overuse it without bringing a little bit of balance, I think we're we can harm the world around us at least that's what I found for myself that my greatest strengths can be my greatest weaknesses as well
1: well I mean and I think that's a what a lot of us I like to Describe myself as a walking contradiction, and believe it or not, he said I was very energetic. Mm. I've always been energetic from kid till now. But I, at one point in my life, when I kept moving, I turned into this introvert because I was, uh, I was afraid of my uniqueness. (laughs) Oh yeah, uh, yeah. All I wanted to do as a kid was stand out. I mean, I I say this all the time, you know. And when I was ten, I was a skinny Nigerian kid with a Nigerian accent in a French-speaking country in an American international school, going through puberty. And so right. I just wanted to be able to have friends and to have um girls like me because I was, you know, going through puberty. And I wanted to be able to ask someone out to a dance and um have her not tear up the card, which did happen to me. She, did. she, she <laughs> tore up the card. You're
0: still stinging from that, I can tell. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And yeah. it's funny. We're Facebook friends now, and she has no idea that she did that. And she's <laughs> – <Yeah. laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, I'm never going to out her. But because she's, yeah. she's so nice and she's high, she looks very happy But it. I just remember that traumatizing experience where she just tore a card that I created for her on Valentine's Day.
0: But it's all good. <laughs> so how did you learn to be um, like or where did the energy come from? Like, how? so you you when you were an introvert or acting like an introvert, mm. how how did the energy change? Were you still very energetic and how did that manifest itself? I think the
1: the energy was transformed into uh me trying to be a, a class clown. You know, uh oh, so okay. a lot of times in terms in a you know and, and I'm sarcastic now, but a lot of times when I was trying to find a way to fit in, I thought, well, um I I use sports. I play a lot of sports. And sports is mm-hmm. one way. And the other way was if I thought, well, if I was funny, <laughs> maybe yeah. people, I could mask away a lot of things and people would, would, you know, like me for jokes. But I, I, I honestly yeah. don't know. I mean, I was born this way. I'm the oldest of three boys and I've always just had a zest for life. You know, I was a kid that was watching Oprah Winfrey and, and uh, Nelson Mandela. And I was like, I want to be that person. Nah, 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 And I don't know. Right. It just happened, um, that way. So. Yeah. But I think the reason why I really love your book as we get into this is that when you talk about, there's a chapter, we'll, we'll get to that later, where you ask people to ask other people what their unique contributions are to the world and what that is. And yeah. a lot of what my things that I, I've done that before is people always say, well, you help connect people and people that never would have been friends in the same place. And I think it obviously it comes from my background. When I moved in different places, I just was able to see different things. But my energy, uh, my energy. I found, yeah, which can be a weakness if I'm not harnessing the right way, has also inspired people to just feel like uh, just normally happy. Like, oh, this guy's cheery. Randomly, right? <laughs> I'm just right. gonna <laughs> smile back.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. And yeah. and the enthusiasm, like you've already connected me because I was listening to your podcast. And I was really struck by one episode in particular, and you offered to connect me to that person, and it is. A- almost like you're, sort of, you're, you're one of these matchmakers, but it's, 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 it's driven by, I can tell this by listening to you, I feel like I'm interviewing you, which uh. is sort of flipping this around, but, <laughs> but it feels like your, your perspective is to help people, and and that the money through commerce will come, and you're not worried about it, which is a really unique perspective, and to me, that's what drives my content marketing, it's what drives the book, uh, or the books plural. it 's this notion of helping people, and I just know that enough people will hire me and i don 't have to work at it i don 't have to think about it i don 't have right. to it 's not at the top of my mind if if my perspective is to think really clearly and try to help people, the rest of it 's going to happen
1: absolutely and you 're so spot on with with that uh, perspective is because you know I, i'm as you said'm i 'm twenty years old, but when you come from a Nigerian culture area, the oldest of of, three boys, you're not just representing your family, you're representing your extended family. and they send you to a foreign country. You're supposed to be a lawyer, engineer, or doctor. And I, you know, I had a dream when I was 10 to sort of change the world by exposing people to different perspectives. But then I came to America, 85 job rejections. Uh, then I gave up and did, you know, a typical job that wasn't suited to my skills. And then two years of that was, um, Which just was misery. And then, you know, it wasn't until near death experience, I decided to, to quit the job that gave me a visa in this country and I freaked my parents out. (laughs) And then I, and then I moved to New York City, uh, without any, any money and and just a dream. And, you know, to satisfy my parents, I took an MBA. So like, okay, your son is doing is at least he's getting an education. (laughs) So, so, so so I got the education there, but then it was what you said. I, I just felt like it was no more i, I was just driven i, I felt like i had suppressed all that desire to help so much and use my gifts and you know in the process of getting fired twice being broke owing the IRS money owing uh, uh you know several back pay of rent i developed the i honed rather the expertise and uh turned it into a platform and then i you know i just shed away worry even though i should right. have been worried many times but uh yeah. um that's that, that's one of the reasons I, lo- I love your book, though, because in your book, you talk about how to inspire people to narrow their focus with greater courage, and that's what I try to learn about myself. And then you urge them to ar- articulate more with concise points of view, and then you steer them to greater, a greater clarity about who they are as professionals. So tell me why you decided to write this book, The Business of Expertise.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting because the book I decided to write ended up not being the book I actually wrote. So I had done – so much my own process is i don't know how typical it is but i i do tons of research and then i craft a very detailed outline and that's the hard part for me and then once i start fleshing out the outline that's when it feels like i've built i framed the house and i've hung all the drywall and then i'm painting it that's what writing feels like to me i love that part of it and i just go to our cabin and i write 2 to 4000 words a day five, six days in a row. I take the afternoons off to go hike and stuff. And it just, it's wonderful. But as I was doing the writing part, so I'd finished the research, I'd finished the outline, this big sigh of relief, because I'm, now I'm finally in the writing stage that I love, I feel comfortable doing it. And I realized it's like, oh my God, it's like I'm writing another Wikipedia book. And it was passionless to me. The book I wrote before this was called Financial Management of a Marketing Firm. It's really changed a lot of people's businesses. It's been a really impactful book, but it it wasn't passionate. The other one was a little bit passionate about managing people, but not all that much. And so I decided to just follow my passion on this book and see where it would lead. And I was so inspired by this notion of getting to know, and the know is spelled K-N-O-W there rather than N-O. Getting to know, it's getting to that point in your life when You exchange this pursuit, this all-out pursuit of variety for a pursuit of a deeper competence, right, where clients are willing and excited to pay you for turning the lights on in their lives, whatever that is, whatever your focus is. And the book became much shorter than I – it was going to be a hundred and ten, hundred and twenty thousand 120,000-word book. This one ended up being about 45,000, so much shorter. I decided to make it a small handbook-looking thing. I decided to illustrate it, decided to print it in full color, and it just became like this manifesto, like – a manifesto for expertise, not a manifesto for consulting because I'm I'm really uncomfortable with a lot of those concepts, but a, a manifesto for expertise, like for people to change their world. There are lots of ways to change their world. I'm a particular advocate of changing your world through expertise, knowing what the hell you're – can I say hell on here? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you can say whatever okay. you want. You can say whatever. Okay. <laughs> so knowing what the hell they're talking about, it's like – and once you – you've, you've You've tasted both, I'm sure. You've tasted incompetence where you're making shit up. Mm-hmm. And then more recently in your life, you have tasted real competence. And that's because you decided in one case, just one example, you decided to put yourself out there to risk failing again, doing a podcast, and all that comes along with that. And and learning how to interview people, how to tie all this stuff together, that's expertise. You dis- You traded – you decided to say no to 90 of the 100 things you were doing and focus on the 10 things and maybe when you're 38 and 48 and 58 the list will be even smaller you right. know that's the concept of expertise it's it's just deciding to know what the hell you're talking about and i am passionate about that
1: no and you are absolutely right this is so funny this is one of those rare interviews where I get to share a lot of it myself and a lot of the guests sometimes want to, they always want to know what what was the process with you. So, you know, on the outside, you know, I'm yeah. a foreigner with an MBA, uh, has a degree in business, has an MBA in marketing and communications. I, right. I am doing communications now, but I wouldn't say anything that I learned is what I'm applying. But at the same time, I'm glad I went through that process because, you know, there's certain things you learn from school, discipline, networking right. and all that. But Everything that I decided to do in my career is what you said. You know, once I decided to shed away other people's perceptions of what success was for me and just embrace failure more, you know, when I started the podcast it was 2014, uh, and I just decided to really hone in a lot of things that were already raw in me. And yeah. when we talk about this. I started to look for patterns. You know, it was right. Yes. Patterns. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you about it. this is one of my favorite books of the year because I was I just I kept writing and checking things up, but. It was patterns, and I want your perspective and pattern matching. But what happened, though, where this this really blew up was, I could never have predicted that we would have, you know, Trump as president. We would have Brexit. Right. We'll have right. all the stuff that goes on in the world, and people that listened to my content and observed me for a while, all of a sudden started to demand more of my my expertise for some reason. I started to get more emails from people randomly, or people that I pitched to before years. Right. now started to say yes because it immediately became relevant. And I'm always saying to myself, I wonder what, what would have happened if I decided to give up during those times when I wasn't getting yeah. um, traction. And it, it, it's like, just crazy with the timing and all that because anyone that knows me, I'm always the self-deprecating person, but at, at some level I had to accept that I was good at something and be, and just like put it out there in the world and say I am someone that can help connect people across cultures. And people are like, well, we need someone with um, a skill and cultural competency, and how that can tie into leadership. And because of the body of work that I put, that I maybe sometimes didn't think mattered, all of a sudden it matters that you have over three hundred episodes, and you've spoken over two hundred times, uh, and you know all these things now start to add up. And so I hope as you hear David talking and um, with pattern matching and, and finding your role in the world, and and um, anyone listening here that you shouldn't give up hone in your skills because you never know when it becomes relevant.
0: Absolutely. And what you just described to me is something I talk about in the book is that I can sometimes, so if I'm working with a client who is kind of where maybe you were four years ago or five years ago, I'll often believe in them more than they believe in themselves. They have enough belief that they keep forging ahead, but I look at their at their qual- the quality of their thinking and their discipline and I say, Oh, my God, it's like you should be making so much more money. You're really much better than you think. But but what I say doesn't matter. What matters is the marketplace acceptance. And you you just described marketplace acceptance in your own way, and that's exactly right. The marketplace started to affirm what you had some suspicions about. And that gave you the confidence to, to raise your game, right? And to, and to fully embrace the stage that you're playing on. That's a beautiful process.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And much like you with the Mayan experience, I, I spent the first nine years of my life in a military dictatorship. But I didn't think anything of it until right. recently. Yeah. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, military dictatorship. You know, a lot of people died and, and, and unfortunately. But I was going back to connect the dots and I was like, wow. That did shape my life because I remember used to, I used to ask my dad questions. Why is it that we can't express our opinions? Why is right. it that we live in a country of over 250 ethnic groups and this is happening? And it was very curious. But looking back, it obviously tapped into my curiosity because that's that's how I became fascinated with Nelson Mandela. And I had taken that for granted. I was like, Mandela is freeing a country from apartheid. And I w- desperately wanted to help free our country from that. Uh, and we just take things for granted. And it's not. It was when I started to notice the patterns with Oprah communication, Nelson Mandela making an impact, and bringing people from different backgrounds together. That's essentially what I've married today with media and and doing that. So, uh, can you explain why pattern matching is so important?
0: Yes, uh, and I, I think that if I remember, that's really how kind of how I start the book out because I. For some – I guess um, I don't go to see movies. I, it's, I love movies actually, but it's hard for me to sit still that long. And, and I don't know. I didn't grow up with them. The same reason I don't do ice skating because I didn't have any ice skating. I don't know how to snow ski. You know, there's things I didn't grow up with. And so I don't go very often. I go to one, a movie every four or five years. And one of the most impactful movies I ever went to – of course, I haven't gone to many, right? I did The first movie I went to, I was 22 years old that says something but I was a a beautiful mind I saw a beautiful mind and my wife and I were sitting in the front row and I it's actually hard for me to talk about this without being emotional about it because I thought that I saw myself in John in that movie and like having um unusual intelligence which doesn't matter frankly Um, But uh, different people skills, as in like measured against the average person, sort of deficient people skills, Um, but seeing how he changed the course of history – largely because he noticed patterns. And in fact, a, a columnist with the New York Times told me in an email recently that I should have named this book. And the book hasn't been mentioned in the Times. He was just email me and he said, you should have called this the monetization of pattern matching. And I thought, "Ah, oh, that's really probably true. Because I, from a photographer standpoint, I'm fascinated by the patterns I see in nature, as well as just uh, architecture and so on. And then um, when you when you look at the foundation of intelligence it's it 's built on this premise of pattern matching that 's why kids can notice patterns even before they can read and write and we can measure a child's intelligence level by their their ability to match patterns and In my own experience fast forwarding a couple of decades, my own experience in consulting was that it was actually six no, four years into my consulting practice before I started to look at it through the perspective of pattern matching. I was sitting there one day getting ready to make a presentation to the client after spending two days at the firm, and I recognized that I was saying some of the same things that I had said the week before with a different firm and the week before with a different firm and so on, and it hit me like, oh my goodness, I've got to stop here. I've got to stop and I've got to start paying very different kinds of attention to pattern matching because patterns are what enable us to solve problems quicker and more reliably. And so the business of expertise is really about focusing your practice so that you put yourself in front of similar situations, which then allows you to see patterns. It's that three ABC step process. All right. So if we take the the ABC step process and we contrast that with the way A a more typical expert might work. We have an expert who's trying to be an expert in too many areas, right? And so they everything they do looks different from what they did before. It's a really exciting practice. It's it's what draws people into an unpositioned firm because there's so much variety. But it's not really it's not really earning your keep. It's not really it's it. That's that process that happens slowly over time. You trade your your strong desire for variety for a deeper desire for expertise so that you're really earning the money for clients
1: right no i, I love that and th- one of the things that you talk about in the book i'm looking through my notes here and there's um there's a section where you have you talk about confidence opportunity and capacity right, right. so a lot of people who are you know seen as experts they there's that you know there's those three things that deflate or inflate Based on people's perceptions of them, why do you feel like confidence is something that every um, consultant needs to actually work on? And how do you feel like that aligns with opportunity and capacity?
0: Yeah. So the the confidence comes, and we talked about this a few minutes ago, a little bit, talking about how uh, if I, if I go into a firm or like if you're going to work with a new client and you believe in their abilities more than they do, and I, I find that I find that quite frequently is the case and so one option would be for me to kind of reach down inside them and pull up that confidence level and now all of a sudden boom they're a different person and they're charging more appropriate fees and they're worming their way deeper into clients lives because of that confidence but it doesn't work that way confidence usually comes from it's it's the kind of thing that your mommy and your daddy did for you even against all the evidence, they believed in you, right? My parents were sort of that way. Your parents were too, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. the other. So I don't have access to reaching in and pulling up the confidence. So what I can do is I give them a tighter positioning, which makes lead generation easier. Because with with the right positioning, lead generation is easier because now I know where to find my prospects. I know what to say to them. I know what services they're frequently going to want. I know what people I'll need in order to fulfill those promises and so on. So I give them more opportunities and then the marketplace acceptance comes, which is what something you and I talked about earlier. Yeah. So that's the that's the confidence side. Now, now, and I think that's true around the world. This next one I think is different in developed cultures versus developing cultures in the sense that in the U.S. in particular, we are so in love with the idea of opportunity that we are willing to shed competence in order to chase opportunity. This is the land of opportunity, and it's almost wrong. We feel like it's almost unethical to leave opportunity on the table. And so we do all kinds of really crazy, stupid things to chase opportunity. We go into debt when there are other options for us, or we water down our focus because we love where this might lead us, right? Now, the rest of the world doesn't view opportunity that way. It's a much more mature, enlightened view of opportunity. And what happens then is that we are constantly, so we're, we're, we're chasing this opportunity in developed cultures, and then we gotta hire people to meet the opportunities that come our way, even though they're not all that profitable sometimes, they're just exciting. And we end up with a firm that's the size that the marketplace has determined it wants us to be, rather than the size firm we really should be based on our desire to manage people, to take financial risk, and all of those things. So, what's the answer? What's the relationship between opportunity? capacity and confidence, and particularly between capacity and opportunity. I think the size of your firm, whether you're a one-man shop like me, or you're a...
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role,
0: like me. the, the, the relative size is you should always be a smaller firm than your opportunity because that preserves this gap between opportunity and capacity. It preserves that ability for you to say no. Without the ability to say no, then you just feel duty-bound to take everything that comes your way because you're just feeding this machine that you've created that's hungry and it's going to eat you up. It's chasing you all the time. And if you don't keep throwing Pieces of food behind you, it'll catch up and eat you. That's that's where we get into trouble. Wow. It's that's the biggest driver of compromise in business is panic about what's going to happen if we don't compromise.
1: That's amazing. We're talking to David C. Baker, the author of one of my favorite books of the year so far, and I've read over thirty, uh, "The Business of Expertise." Now you just heard him talk about, you know confidence and competency there i I want to to hone in on this point though so a lot of listeners out there a lot of you listening right now might have a skill you might want to build a business around your expertise you might want to build a business around you might want to build i don't know a team around your expertise but listen to this part this is a part i was reading on the bed and i almost fell off (laughs) 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 he says the idea that you should follow your heart and that success will follow you is a fool's errand we could rewrite it though Follow your heart, but do some research and planning first. Then save up some money so that you have a cushion without a compromise, without having to compromise. Fake it a little at first, we all do, but get smarter every day. Build a business that delivers the value that others enjoy paying you for. Enjoy your work and be disciplined about the parts you don't. Ensure a profitable enterprise to fund your excessive habits. Follow your heart, but follow your brain too. Explain, sir.
0: Yeah. Yeah, right. I hope your bed isn't too far off the ground and you didn't hurt yourself when you fell off. <laughs>
1: hey, you, you know, they they told me I was Kryptonian, and me and Superman are cousins, so I'm like, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think something that's crept into our culture nowadays uh, for developed cultures is this notion that we somehow have the right to enjoy our work, and like it's a basic human right. And I really understand that concept. And as it turns out, I love my work. Uh, So I also, I want to clarify too that there's nothing to be gained by hating your work. That's like, that's really silly thinking. I, you know, to whatever degree we can enjoy our work, that's fantastic. There's no disadvantage to enjoying your work. The disadvantage comes in demanding that we enjoy our work. And my thinking on this really does come back to my childhood. So and in, you'll relate to this growing up in Nigeria. So so a villager in Nigeria would get up and they'd have the same breakfast every day and they'd get up at, the, at, at whenever the sun appeared, right, because there wasn't electricity, and they'd go out and they'd work in the fields. Now, did they go out and work in the fields because they were just so excited about that? And and they couldn't wait to do it. And and the night before, they're just sitting around the fire talking with friends about how they can't couldn't wait to get out in the fields again. No, they did it because that's what they needed to do to live. Now, fast forward a couple of millennia here, or a couple of centuries anyway, and is it like there's no virtue I get, uh, again in not enjoying your work, but if we say that everybody has a right to love their work, what we're doing is we're disenfranchising 90% of the freaking planet. And I think that's wrong. So to whatever degree we can enjoy our work, that's fantastic. But if we, if we use that as like the signaling call, like that's the primary criteria, I must enjoy my work. And it shows up in these cultural phrases like, follow your heart and success will follow. That's just bullshit. There's a lot of people who are following their hearts, who are starving. Now, so there's a mix, right? So we, we don't want to say, oh, no, don't follow your heart. That'd be stupid advice. But we want to follow your heart with some smarts, too. So that's kind of why I ended that phrase, trying not to be too harsh by saying follow your heart, but mix in a little bit of brain, too. Yeah. Every Like, you're self-aware. Like, I'm not worried. If you decided to follow your heart, I wouldn't be worried about it. okay. But there's somebody in your family, and I don't know your family, so I can say this. You, you, <laughs> would, you wouldn't dare agree with me here, but there's somebody in your family that comes together at family reunions, and every time they come together, they've got a new pursuit. They're following their heart, and they never settle down and accomplish anything in the world. They're always following their heart, jumping from one thing to the next. Those are the people that I'm talking to, not yeah. the smart people that are using their head and their heart at the same time.
1: Yeah. And I find that that comes from a lack of self awareness. It actually comes from not understanding the why of um, what your expertise is. And you, you talk about entrepreneur expertise. So how do you find the why for your entrepreneur expertise? I love what you said in the book, but I want you to explain those four concepts.
0: Yeah. So part of, part of the why, uh, are you talking about like, uh, money and impact and so on. Those, no, no, those yeah, are... yeah we'll, we'll talk about that too. But the values, purpose, mission.
1: Uh, oh, yeah, right, yeah. right, and
0: vision. yeah. So I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm the equivalent of a B corporation in that I've made a commitment. And in, in Tennessee, I was the first service firm that that applied for that a couple of years ago, and it it means that I don't just exist for profit. That but it doesn't mean that i have to make any compromises around profit e- either it just means that i have a very specific mission in the world and that's to help people and it's okay to make money in in the process but why does your organization exist you read a lot of books i imagine you've you've read you know the seminal book about uh, you know Simon Sinek's book about why and yep. purpose and so on i think that's a fantastic book and it's amazing to me that it took that long it took you know in the late 1900s for somebody to write a book that's that good about mission and purpose and i so believe that right i it's it's and and balance is the key we can we can be a mission or purpose driven firm and we can also make money and how do we tie all those things together maybe if we're going to rate them it, that's a tougher exercise, but maybe we can bring balance in all of those areas, and then and then we can enjoy our work, right? Enjoying our work means it's not just about what I'm doing during the day. It's about the fact that maybe I'm not worried, sick to death, that I'm not going to make payroll next week. That's a part of enjoying your work, or maybe it's part of enjoying your work is standing up on stage and not being afraid of a single question that somebody could ask because you know the material so well, or maybe it's not being afraid of, of, of having a shallow perspective when a client is questioning you in a boardroom. It's like, there's many ways to enjoy work. And I've tasted competence as so have so many other people. And I think competence is really great. It helps me enjoy my work. I don't, Mean, though, that I can't make money and that I can't enjoy what I do. But there's got to be room for competence in this story somewhere, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that, that And why I love what you said there is because you really put it in almost this period. You know, this is a visual book as well. There's like this this triangle and then there's an upside down triangle. You said start with the values or the purpose right. and then, then your mission. And your vision. Can you explain those four concepts so the the listeners can just get a taste of what to expect in the book? What are the values to you? What What is purpose to you? What is mission? What is vision?
0: Yeah. So you do have to start in that order because – and I find those concepts really confusing, honestly. They're still a little confusing to me. I was trying to clarify them a little bit. Uh, maybe it's because people use those phrases differently. And and so, you know, you go into a typical corporation and they've got values and mission and purpose. And it's like, well, what's the difference between the two? Well, to me, so you start with values and those are the things that would never change. No matter what, no matter what your job was, no matter what your ownership position was, those are the values that never change, right? And then as you work down through these other things, they become more and more applicable to your particular job. So, what is, what are we trying, what are the values that I have personally? What are the values of our organization? What are we trying to accomplish as an organization? Like, if we could wave a magic wand and we could say, like this is david land and i'm king and i get to make all the decisions what would success look like that's how you that's how you start to personalize this stuff so it's really i don't want people to get too hung up on those things because yeah. a lot of it can be belly button gazing where and i also I get nervous if I see plaques on the wall talking about it because there's an inverse relationship between it. Like the more people talk about it, the less likely it's true. But there is room to reflect on this stuff personally for sure. Yeah, yeah. I know Thank you for you know taking some moments to talk about that.
1: Now, the other thing that you – you wrote this book for for consultants, for people especially, for people who are trying to build an expertise or rather already have an expertise and maybe want to learn more. Right. Now – You say something in the book, you say what's even more ironic is that consultants and marketers who are supposed to understand positioning better than any professional services are the absolute worst at positioning themselves. This is something a lot of specialists in the world struggle with. How do I position myself? How do I figure out how to market myself when everybody else seems to do the same thing? Can you educate us on the importance of positioning and uh, the mistakes that many businesses make?
0: Sure. So I think positioning is so important because it drives so many other decisions, like where we're going to find our clients, what we're going to do for them, what kind of people we're going to hire, the service offerings. I can't think of anything else that, other than the mission, values, purpose, all that stuff, that's really the foundational. But once you've got that nailed, you've got to have positioning next. Without positioning, we don't know what we're doing and so on. So that's why it's so important. But why... Why is it that so many really smart professionals, even the ones who do positioning for a living, can't nail this for themselves? Well, partly, and I think mainly it's because they're inside the bottle and they can't see their own label. And there's an illustration in the book about that. So I can see – like I could do a better job of positioning you than I could do a better job of positioning myself you could do a better job of positioning me than you could yourself because you can see things from the outside. That's why one of the exercises is to ask other people what you're really good at because then you can compare all these independent voices and get a more objective perspective. That's a part of it. Another part of it is that is this is the the black and white cold hard sort of decision making process. So as I'm out there in my day to day as a professional I am drawn to opportunities. Yesterday I was taking pictures at a wildlife preservation park which has nothing to do with my business. I just wanted to do it. I get drawn off mission quite a bit and I recognize that in myself. It makes it easier for me to beat other people by it if I see it in myself as well. And and so but I can make more black and white recommendations for somebody else than I can for myself. I don't get pulled off mission. One of the things that I see people doing frequently is in their own positioning, and this is different than it used to be 20 years ago. In the past, positioning decisions required, they required a lot of thought because we are going to print some expensive stationery that says who we are, and we're not going to have PowerPoint, we're not going to have color printers to have a different face on our expertise every time we go pitch something nowadays what people are doing instead is they buy an unpainted white step van and they're driving down the street from one from their office to one prospect after another every day and they stop short of the prospect's office a block away they pull over they go to the back of the van they flip through the 20 different magnetic signs they pick the one that most closely matches what this new prospect wants to see the expert as They throw it on the side of the van, pull in, and then say, we are your ex, fill in the blank expert. And then they take the sign off and they use a different sign the next time they go somewhere. That's what modern technology has allowed us to do. It's allowed us to be different people in each case, and it's really watered-down positioning. What What I'm screaming for people to do in this book is to paint the van. Don't use a white, unpainted step van and change the message every time. Paint the van. This gives you the opportunity to dive deeper and to fill out, to flesh out your expertise and to start earning your money. I'm, I feel like I'm yelling at you here. No, no. Hey, keep,
1: keep it. No, but the, the reason why I can hear that passion and the reason why you're saying this is because I imagine you see a lot of businesses, just like you said, you can see the vision maybe even better than they can. And you're like, wow, no, if only you did that. You did this. And, and I find you know, you're talking a lot about deep expertise with broad context.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not that I'm smarter. It's just that I'm, I'm not them. I'm, I'm outside them. Right. All right.
1: Right. Right. So when you're talking about deep expertise with broad concept, uh, you're really talking about this idea of being a balanced expert. So what does a balanced expert look like to you? Because there's horizontal positioning and then there's vertical positioning and you know, all these things are great. But is there a way where we can mix all those things? And I guess the listener right now is confused. So maybe let's start off with what <laughs> uh, what is your definition of deep expertise with broad concept, and then broad context, and then we can talk about horizontal vertical.
0: Yeah. So I I am advocating very very deep uh, expertise. Okay, but. If that deep expertise is unhinged from reality, like you can picture this really weird professor in the library all the time developing this very deep expertise, and the world is changing or crumbling around him or her, and it's like that's not very useful to the world, right? So we have to balance those two things together. Now, when we try to balance them, them those two things within this, the enterprise – That's what really messes things up. So when people demand that they must enjoy their work, then they position their firm so that it touches on all the things they want to do. Instead of saying, no, this business is about making money, it's about delivering value to my clients. Now, I still want this deep expertise to be placed within a deeper context. Where does the deeper context come from? Because I think experts need to be very curious and they need to understand, they need to be able to have an intelligent conversation with almost anybody in the world for at least an hour. That's sort of the test for me. You might run out of things to say after that, but you should be able to have an interesting conversation. You should interest somebody, anybody in the world for at least an hour. Now, where does that come from? If you're focusing your deep expertise in the business, that comes from your life outside of work. And it shouldn't look anything like your life in work. I would I would keep a separation between the two. And your personal life should be so incredibly diverse, so incredibly interesting, that when your work life starts to get in the way of your personal life, it pisses you off because you want to get out to this exciting life. Now, personally, I find deep expertise to be very satisfying and interesting. But even if it wasn't, that's still my commitment to clients to be a to be somebody that delivers value but then I use the money I make and I use the time I have because I limit how much I work to have a very interesting life out work outside of work not only does that keep me interested in life as whole as a whole but it also keeps my expertise, in context and not unhinged from reality. That's that's how those two concepts work together.
1: Nah, yeah, that's beautiful, and, that, and that's so true. In, in do you find that a lot of people who want to be experts who who claim to be experts aren't doing themselves any uh, service by you know almost forgetting to build on the competency level? Maybe they rest on their laurels yeah. because they've all right. No, and and you know I I have that thought as well many times, but. I, it was interesting seeing it in a book where you actually paint the picture of why it's important to always continue to hone your skills. A lot of people think if you get to a certain level, um, you can sort of just rest on your laurels. And the danger with that today is you, you also talk about the fact that there are many other options and someone can end up positioning themselves better than you and take away <laughs> yeah, <laughs> your market right. share. So, right. um, I, I just want you to talk about then the importance of, uh, Horizontal and vertical position in that context where, you know, deep expertise, yes, but then some people say horizontal and vertical. What are those two things and how do they work?
0: So to define them, uh, vertical expertise is tied to a specific industry category. So it might be an SIC code or an NAICS code, more, more modern version of that. So we're talking about manufacturing or healthcare or finance or high tech or whatever. That's vertical expertise where you're tied to a particular industry. And then horizontal expertise is across many of those same SIC codes, but you are You're targeting a demographic, say the aging population or millennials or whatever it is, or it's a particular service offering. So you're doing one thing for many different industries. That's horizontal expertise. And understanding those two and the pros and cons of each of them – is is something that you know the book talks quite a bit about because it's it's important to understand that like most younger experts are drawn to horizontal expertise because of the variety, but then because they're touching so many different industries and each each engagement looks a little bit different uh but what they struggle with is that it's so much harder to find your client with a horizontal uh expertise so they sometimes will have to fall back to a vertical expertise. So, there there are some nuances around that, and I haven't seen much written on the difference between vertical and horizontal, so that's why I decided to devote several chapters to it.
1: Yeah, no, and someone listening may say, well, David, I get what you say with horizontal, I
0: get what you say with vertical. Isn't there a way to have both? Well, there is for sure, yeah. Now we're talking about a hyper. Focused firm. So let's say we're talking about a PR firm that does crisis communications, that's a horizontal expertise, and then let's say that they develop a particular vertical expertise, like for firms that are going through an M&A process. So now we have, I think of it as almost like a bullseye, right? So we, we're combining a horizontal and a vertical in this site. The horizontal, horizontal is... Um, is the crisis and the vertical is firms going through an M&A process. So crisis for M&A, it's like, man, you can own that positioning because there probably aren't going to be more than five or 10 firms in the whole world that are really good at that. But the the process of positioning, usually you aren't quite that ambitious. You usually take steps toward it. and And what stops you on the path of moving from an undifferentiated positioning to a really tight one like i just described what stops you on that process is either running out of opportunity it's like oh we're so tight that there aren't enough clients for us or more likely actually you run out of of courage right it's like oh i know that's a good idea but i don't i don't like it i don't want to do it so you when you make a positioning decision ideally it's 20 years but More realistically, it's a five-year decision. Then what happens after five years? Well, you're going to tighten it even more because you're – a friend of mine, Blair Inns, who – he's my podcast partner, and he's written a book that's really influential. It's called The Win Without Pitching Manifesto, and he talks about this concept that's always – it's always struck me as so real. It's like you decide from a positioning standpoint, you decide to walk into a room. You walk into a door – through a door into a room, and you don't know what's in that room yet. You just know that the next step in your professional life is to be focused, and that means being in that room. You don't know what other doors are leading from that room until you go into it. Once you get in the room, you see that like while that might have seemed confining to you before you crossed the threshold, once you get in here, you see all kinds of other amazing opportunities you had no idea even existed before you crossed that into, through that door into the room.
1: Yeah. Wow. No, I've got to tell you, I can't recommend this book enough. You, you really have to, to dive into it. And, you know, we don't have enough time to go into all the concepts because each page (laughs) is something that you can take, take notes on. I, I want to segue into a core element of who you are, right? So there's okay. a particular chapter that resonated with me because that's why I do this podcast. I truly want to make a global impact. I want to build the next of global leaders. Mm. You say something about
0: people needing to know their role in the world. What do you mean right. by that? Well, you know, there's something uh, – I spent time with a lot of animals yesterday, and, and they're so such fascinating, beautiful creatures. But I don't know that any of them is thinking about their impact on the world. It seems like that's something that separates us from the rest of the creatures out there. There are a lot of things, but that's one big one. It's like our hearts are crying to have an impact on our world. And frankly, more of us, including me, ought to think about the impact we can have on our spouse, on our children, on our friends. And, And then if we have any extra energy, we ought to think about, the impact we can have on the world around us, but there's something in our hearts that cries out to have an impact. And whether, I mean, I hope people recognize this of me when I die. I hope people show up, you know, and talk about it. But even if they don't, I want this, the satisfaction that comes from changing lives on a small, in a small way every day. Like, all of us want a bigger platform than we have. In some ways, not all of us, but some of us do. You do, I do. On the other hand, maybe oh, there's just so much opportunity right here. We don't. We don't need a bigger platform. We can every day if we do our job, if we follow expertise, if we have critical thinking skills, if we are disciplined, we are having an impact on our world. And. That's the thing about, like, what's the difference between a published author and an unpublished author? It's discipline. It's just being a fool and writing a book. I want to have an impact on the world. That's why I write. I love it, as it turns out. And other people have different ways of doing that. Yours is through a podcast and then touching people individually and connecting them. It's like our world could be a very different place if people thought more about how they could change the world from whatever perspective, from whatever platform they have.
1: That's beautifully said. That's beautifully said. Thank you so much for saying that, David. Um, I can see and feel the passion in you as you say that. And obviously, it's something that's deeply rooted in your choir. It was just on your Instagram. I saw the animal pictures. He's a great photographer, by the way. Uh, David, uh, David Baker on Instagram. But you then, uh, before the show, we, we were talking about what your idea of is of global citizenship. The, the listeners yeah. here come from 150 countries. Why do you feel like in today's world, global citizenship
0: is something that needs to be uh, taken seriously? Because we need a broader perspective. We we can't be coming up with solutions that really just work for our culture and then impose them on other people in the world. There has to be more empathy. There has to be more understanding. We've sent a lot of young folks to visit other countries for 30 days, and I don't care whether they're there to just talk with people, to learn a language, to help build a school or a a clinic. or It doesn't matter to me. They just need to be exposed. Now, increasingly, you can go to New York City or Chicago, and it feels like you're going to a third world country, in a way, in an unde- or a developing country because there's so much beautiful diversity in the people that are there. In fact, thousands of, of the Mayan Indians I grew up with all migrated en masse to LA because of the civil war that was occurring in the early 70s. So there's just something about, I, I don't know, to me it's, it's sitting on a, a seawall in Havana and talking with somebody. It's it's talking with somebody in a in a cab in in Taipei. It's it's just understanding that as humans we look different, we're different heights, we come from different backgrounds, we have different motivations. But there's the world is growing closer together. I do understand some of the nationalist um, some of the fears that drive nationalism, and I'm against almost all of it, but. The world is, a, is full of very interesting people, and it feels to me like global citizens are ones who do not think that their perspective is automatically right. They're, they have a point of view, but they always hold it with a certain amount of humility, eager to listen to other people and see if they need to adjust that. It's the opposite of being sort of in your own bubble on Facebook, for instance.
1: There you go. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking to David Be- uh, David Baker, who wrote a book that I consider one of my favorites this year, The Business of Expertise, and it's all about how entrepreneurial experts can convert their insights into impact and wealth. Where can they find the book, sir? Uh,
0: they can buy it at expertise.is or Amazon, of course, carries it, and if uh, if anybody just is struggling with the 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 funds to pay for one? Just let me know, and I'll certainly send it to them. Uh, we it's not about the money, but they can they can get it on Amazon or our site. expertise.is.
1: No, no, this is essential. And you know, Daniel Pink, who uh, is one of the uh, the great entrepreneurs, described this book as essential reading for entrepreneurs in any field. I'll certainly um, second that, and I think that you all should really. Get yourself some, if, what, depending on when this episode comes out, I'm hoping it comes out before Christmas. Uh, get yourself at least a New Year's gift by listening to this, uh, by listening to this podcast one, but also getting the book. I think that would be the most important thing. Um, I always ask my guests this question and it is the mission statement. It's my, um, the reason why I do what I do. And I believe that we all can use our differences to make a difference. So how do you, David, use your, uh, use your difference to make a difference?
0: I think for me it's having the courage to uh, surface things in conversations that pretty much everybody is sensing but nobody has the courage to say and doing it in a kind, authentic way. That's probably at the core of what I do as an advisor. Great question.
1: Ah, And that's a great answer. So (laughs) thank you. This has been one of my favorite interviews just because – It was, I like to have conversational interviews, but this was more conversation than, than, uh, than normal because, you know, you you were interviewing me as well. And I love that. And that was, that was great. And there was, there was just sheer curiosity on both ends. So I want to thank you for uh, being as engaged as you are in in this and just writing this book. I I know I'm going to be following your work from now on, uh, just because I I love what you're doing. I think what you're doing is, is actually creating leaders. Uh, and, and I'm really, really excited to see.
0: Thank you for having me as a guest. I really appreciate it. Very kind. I really enjoyed speaking with you.
1: Thank you so much. The pleasure is mine. And ladies and gentlemen, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've
0: just been listening
1: to the Ask Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxen.com.